Quest, episode 49, Jupiter Ascending. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. My mother taught me what was necessary to rule in this internet. I create! Podcasts! And I destroy them. Oh, and the human beings on your planet are merely a listener waiting to be converted into a fan. We must begin the Sequel Quest podcast. Go! Thank you. Thank you. Where was this for the Oscars? Come on. <laughs> I know. At least a Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award or something. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll get slimed. I don't mind. Oscars are over. Now it's yeah, on yeah. to the future, the universe, this galaxy that we have. Jeremy. Well, guys, we are having a Jupiter Ascending episode. I'm going to be up front and say I have not, and I'm pretty sure I will not watch this. <laughs> <laughs> like so many people. Oh. Jupiter, what? I do want to throw out the thing that does kind of surprise me right off the bat is if you just Google Jupiter Ascending, you'll see countless ones that say Jupiter Ascending is a flop, Jupiter Ascending is a bomb, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the crazy thing for me is that the movie cost somewhere between 170 to 210 million to make, and it grossed 170 million dollars. That's a flop. They lost. $30 million? Well, uh, they projected to make more. That's the problem. Well, they sure, were trying to start a franchise. That's not a flop. I mean, <laughs> if it cost 170 and they made like three, okay, that's a flop. But Jeff, you have to factor in any production budget also doesn't include the advertising, which pretty much you double your production budget. So this film needed to make, if it cost 170, needed to make about about 350 just to be profitable. I guess, but I'm still on my Tron soapbox, so I was right why Tron was not a flop because these numbers don't make sense. This movie, a little more of a case, but still. Well, you can hold out hope for Tron because there's still talks of Tron 3 or technically a reboot with Jared Leto as the lead is the latest. Wherever that gets you. So, Jeremy, tell us just basic outline. Who's in this film? Where'd it come from? Basic premise. And then we have brought in some special guests. All right. We are going super basic on this plot summary. IMDb. A young woman discovers her destiny as an heiress of intergalactic nobility and must fight to protect the inhabitants of Earth from an ancient and destructive industry. There it is. That's true. And who did they get to flesh this film out? Well, they brought in the Wachowskis to flesh it out. Sean Bean. Let's not forget Sean Bean. Multiple Oscar-nominated Eddie Redmayne and winner. Totally underutilized Sean Bean. But oh, <laughs> hey, he got to knock out Channing Tatum. That was like the highlight of my lifetime. Uh. Sean Bean punching him to the ground. Now, now hold on. <laughs> is this this is our first Channing Tatum movie, isn't it? Finally. 
We, he gets mentioned know. almost every episode, Channing Tatum. <laughs> well, every other, I would say, yeah. Always in the running for some sort of casting talk, or my wife just pops in in the background and says, ooh, Channing Tatum. So I don't know <laughs> what we're going to do about this. But speaking of my wife, we're always looking for new talent. We're looking for creative people. We're trying to find those people that bring a, a unique perspective. So I thought to myself, my wife has two very cool friends, two roommates that are very well read. They have just a knowledge of, of sci-fi and fantasy and awesome stories. And so I felt like they would be a great pick for this show, especially mostly because when I brought it up to them, they were very gung-ho and had some ideas. But let us welcome Emily and Kristen. Hello, ladies. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts, because when I said we do a podcast and we talk about sequels to films, good and films, okay, and films uh, (laughs) forgotten, and you immediately came in with Jupiter Ascending. (laughs) And why did that come to mind immediately for you two? It's, it's a film that we feel very passionately about. And by passionately, that's not to imply, like, oh my gosh, this is a movie that everybody should see. It's more because like... Because it's a movie that nobody should see. No, it's more <laughs> that we haven't had as crazy or as, like, a massive reaction to a movie we saw in the theater in a while. So that, it just, it just jumped immediately to mind. <laughs> yeah, we saw it in theaters and we went together and um, Kristen really wanted to see it because she thought, oh, this looks good. I think this will be a good movie. And I just happened to have a free pass. And so I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I didn't have a specific movie I wanted to spend this on. So... <laughs> <laughs> And you were unsure if you should be spending money on this film? That made me so much more enjoyable that I didn't have to pay for it. (laughs) And Kristen did. But it added to her enjoyment, (laughs) these violently disgusted reactions. She could just kind of sit there. I'm not going to say smugly. But I'm not not saying smugly. I share your pain. I saw this in theaters as well. And it was a situation where I hadn't been to the movies and like forever, you know, had two babies at home, just kind of hadn't gotten out. My wife was at work. One of the kids, you know, had a play date. So they were both being watched. I was like, oh, I'll go see a movie. Oh, there's this Wachowski's movie coming out. I'm not even like a Matrix fan or anything. The only other film of theirs I really like is V for Vendetta and they just produced it. But so I said, well, you know, let me go check this out because... It, it was an original story, right? I was like, oh, this is something new, something original, which you don't get a lot of these days. And it looked like, oh, this could be the start of a great sci-fi franchise. And then... Hold on. Could you really call it original? Because it's a book. It's not. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not? It's the Wachowskis Everybody wrote it. Wants, yeah. yeah. Oh. That would make it sense. feels like a book, but you're right. It's not. Yeah, they were approached by the producers. And then the idea was for them to manufacture this great new franchise on League with Matrix because they've done it in the past but what apparently people forgot is that matrix one was awesome matrix three they owe me money for if i get a hold of them there's going to be some reparations going on so it's been quite a while since they've produced something i would say that i enjoyed and so this was kind of meant to be their big comeback jeff i'm curious to know did you catch this in theaters because sometimes you get really excited about films and you love the matrix so i'm so curious what was your opinion going in your first watch experience with this we saw this at the drive-in the drive-in you know it's a double feature and this was the one that we were actually interested in seeing the first one was kingsman which i absolutely detested and so (laughs) then when this movie came on i was like well "Well, compared to kingsman well that's not too bad i mean at least (laughs) sci-fi and and i mean it kind of comes back to what i've talked about on this podcast a couple of times which for me has been even reiterated with the 
massive success of Beauty and the Beast is the fact that Hollywood doesn't like taking risks. I don't know if they ever did, but they certainly don't like it anymore. They like unoriginal things that they know are a shoe in to make a billion dollars and they'll just take it. And for me as a movie fan, like that's starting to really drive me insane and seeing mm -hmm. all of these great directors that are just phoning it in that I'm begging for more Christopher Nolans and more Wachowskis. You guys are right. Like the Wachowskis, they've missed quite a few times, but God bless them. At least they're swinging for the fences. It's kind of interesting that you say that because when we were rereading up on the movie to have something interesting to say, then they <laughs> mentioned how there's like a niche market for this film. And it came down to, yeah, it's self-indulgent. Yeah, it's overblown. Yeah, the plot is lacking, but at least it's trying to be original. So I kind of see where you're coming from. It's a dense universe. I mean, oh, yeah. It's, it's well, and that's that, the thing. Like, there's so much to pick apart. Right. It's the thing, too. And I think, like, going back to your point about the Matrix movies, is that I think what works so well with the first Matrix movie is that it was deceptively simple. Is that if you wanted to go in and just watch a movie and be like, oh, it's about man versus machine and they're stuck in like a computer world, right? Okay. And that's all you want to get out of it. The first movie lets you do that. But by the time you get to the second movie, like you can't take that approach to the second Matrix movie. They force you to go into all the intricacies of why the programming was programmed like this. And if you're not on board with that, forget about it. With this movie, same thing. If you were a fan of Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim is about giant robots fighting giant monsters, and that's about <laughs> it. There's not much plot here. It's just they're going to punch each other and all of a sudden get a sword, and then they're going to hack each other. And that's all that you get in Pacific Rim, and people loved it. With this movie, there's no simple way of like, oh, it's just about a princess becoming an intergalactic. No, no, you got to get into the human harvesting and the political machinations, and you got yada, 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 yada. And you're right, that's where it gets kind of overblown. It very much reminded me of Dune, where sci-fi fans love the book Dune, and then when they finally turned it into a movie, so many non-sci-fi fans were like, what the heck is going on? There's all these different tribes, and now he's riding a worm, and he's <laughs> breathing his own body well, well, And that's and the thing, though. At least with Dune, there is a series of books where you can get answers and like That's to true. Jeremy's confusion, this film seems like it should be a book series so you can get more answers. And there's none, there's not even a novelization. I went looking right. for the novelization. It doesn't exist. It's like, no, no, no. You just have to take it as we're giving it to you that, you know, you get no essential details. But to me where this film really fails, it's not the story itself. It's the editing and the process of the storytelling because the jumps between Earth and space at the beginning of the film, where you get Jupiter's sob story about her dad dying and all the sadness there, and now her life cleaning toilets. And then all of a sudden you get a scene of space soap opera between three siblings that are talking about stuff I do not understand. I just remember how jarring it was <laughs> for me to see these three people just walking this empty city and there's blue crystal dust on the ground. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm seeing here. And I'm also not intrigued. I was just upset because it took me out of it. In my opinion, they have too many narrative points of view. If they had just done it from Jupiter's point of view, she gives us the intro, 
Then she's with Catherine Dunleavy in her room. And then the keepers come in. That's the first instance you get of some intergalactic machinations happening. That would have been like an awesome jump and get you involved. But instead, they try to pepper in stuff before that. And it dilutes what you're doing. And it also, again, it takes your attention away. Am I following Jupiter? Am I following these siblings? Where is my attention supposed to be? Ultimately, it's supposed to be everywhere, which is, I think, why people felt like it was just a mess in the end. The one part, too, and I mean, even re-watching it, even before it came out, it reportedly went way over budget, and Warner Brothers was really nervous because there was a whole new bunch of executives that weren't involved when they first started shooting it and everything, and then they delayed the release so that they could reshoot and add certain sequences, and so apparently that's when they added the 10, 15-minute fight over the tops of Chicago or whatever. They watching to that. Do that? <laughs> yeah, they added that in. But you watch that fight scene, even though I do, th I mean, it goes on too long. It maybe doesn't fit with the narrative of the story, but visually, it is spectacular. And they even talked about, like, they invented, what did they call it? Panocam, which the Panocam is a 180 degree camera that they mounted on a helicopter so that in editing, they could get a 180 degree view. So that's why they use stuntmen for a lot of that. It's almost like going back to the second Matrix movie where they tried to have Neo fighting dozens of Mr. Smiths and they kind of bit off more than they could chew and so it looks like a video game. This doesn't because it's a lot of it is actual stuntmen doing these sort of things. They are innovators. I remember when the first Matrix came out, everybody was gaga over bullet time. Have a camera rotating around a scene from every angle was so phenomenal and same thing with this movie, the visuals and, and the elements they're bringing to life are so new and revolutionary. But the problem that Wachowskis keep falling into over and over and over is let go of something they've done well. Because by the time the second and third Matrixes came out, they were using bullet time in Cheerio commercials. <laughs> it, was, it was done to death. But they kept falling back on that over and over and over so that somebody goes to brush their teeth in the Matrix in bullet time. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Hold on. I, I, I thought... Bullet Time was actually invented for that Cheerios commercial. Uh, <laughs> well, they were, you know, never, never let it be said that Cheerios is behind on the times. You know, they are, they are up they on it. They used it well. They used it very well. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, self-indulgent, sure. But I, I, that was the mandate from the studio. You know, they're like, give us a world that we can now spin off more films out of. It just right. didn't work that way. But honestly, I believe it's not the story. You know, the costume design, the production design, everything is wonderful. But yeah. to me, it's the casting. I mean, To put Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum as your leads, that is a problem. Everybody says Eddie Redmayne is over the top. He's the most entertaining part of the film. I mean, he, absolutely. Oh, or at least the most memorable. Totally... Well, he's the most memorable, but not for a good reason. Because for me, he totally took me out. I had no idea what any of his motivations for any line that he ever said was. Where it just none of it, even like your intro, where he would just randomly raise his voice and start yelling. And you're like, what? What did we call him? The yell whisperer? Yeah, yeah. the yell whisperer. Well, I remember seeing this and I really started to wonder. I'm like, is, is this guy the next Halle Berry? Where he just fooled oh. us all by playing one amazing role and he's really awful? But then I guess he played another couple amazing roles. So I don't well, know. But, but the truth is I'd rather have overacting than zero charisma and zero emotion like Channing Tatum. He's well, literally we just Channing there with the Tatum world, Adam. Everyone I know. loves Channing Tatum. It is sad. It is so sad. It's That's the thing true, is my but... wife, 
we watch this together again, you know, to get familiar. She's like, she blames Mila Kunis. She's like, she just has the same face all the time. She's, you know, she's just bland. Da, da, da. I'm like, that's, that's what I say about Channing Tatum. Like, it's just like, you can't. Notice you she can't only fit. said that when his shirt was off. She was just. Uh, <laughs> it was for like half the movie. <laughs> you notice that? We're like, you know, I should be more pleased about this, but I'm just still not. Well, that's the only reason he's in that. During some of the interviews, they said it was really difficult to work with the Wachowskis because they had a vision, but they weren't capable of communicating it with anybody else. Uh, yeah, Mila wow. Kunis said that. Huh. In the special features, the Wachowskis have made some changes, some personal changes <laughs> over the, the last couple of years. Yeah. And it, I, was, I was watching the special features. It was so interesting because Larry, a.k.a. Lana, now seemed to be the driving force behind this because she was like talking the whole time. And then you have Andy next to her. Basically, he just was looking at her the whole time. He had a open beer next to him and he's just like looked like he had a headache he had his hand on his head you know and it was just her like going on and on and on and what i thought was so interesting was i don't know if you've seen pictures of lana wachowski but she has this big kind of anime pink haircut style that she deals with and then in the movie there's that bounty hunter girl with the blue hair who's basically looks like her but with blue hair and i was like very interesting i didn't Oh, yeah. Never put that together. Because that's the other part, too, that even like the silly part that, yeah, you get Channing Tatum and you find some random excuse for him to take off his shirt. So for a third of the movie, he's shirtless. But you put wolf ears on him. You, and you, you take your goods. Yeah, weird and eyebrows you, you know, and makeup. You yeah. shine your goods up. But I, it was it was interesting where it was like, I guess I could see what they were going for. Because they're like, we want these people to look alien and yet familiar. So I see the train of thought, but just the implementation was so bad. And I read an interview with Lana where she was saying one of their goals for this film was, one, they wanted a strong female protagonist in a science fiction movie, but that they also didn't like the strong, stoic, emotionally withholding hero. And instead, they were kind of picturing more of like a Dorothy from Wizard of Oz or Alice from Alice in Wonderland. But then the worst quote that I heard was it said, can we bring a different kind of female character like Dorothy or Alice, characters who negotiate conflict in complex situations with intelligence and empathy? Yes, Dorothy had a protector, Toto, who's always (laughs) barking at everyone. And that was sort of the origin of Cain. Oh. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. It was really kind of weird. Well, and if well, you think about it, at the end, he gets the wings of a flying monkey. So it's just like it's the total <laughs> Wizard of Oz scenario, yeah, all that. We were looking at this, and you're like, okay, so Channing Tatum, that's already fantasy. And then you add in yeah. gravity boots, and then you add in yeah. dog features and like pointy ears and teeth. What does he need now? Do you know what? He needs some wings. And I was like, <laughs> what do you think? Like, just to make it the complete like 13 year old girl fantasy you're a super hot guardian angel but you know the anti-gravity boots are a cool concept i had dreams when i was a kid about being able just to glide on air you know just like a few feet off the ground and i would just like zip around in my dreams i thought it was awesome but like now that i see it why does he have to kick the air why couldn't he just 
like glide around? You know, why can't they just let him well, fly? Because it's the rollerblading technique roller that looks ridiculous. You know, uh, honestly, if they hadn't done the rollerblading technique. He would have just been like standing there, static, floating <laughs> around true. randomly, like or he would have been crouching. So he looked like he was pooping the entire yeah. time. Yeah. Well, he's a like, better option here. Yeah, because I was thinking, I mean, same thing with the, the boots is with a lot of the stuff in this movie where it's like you can see the thought process where like we want this person to fly, but everyone's done jet packs. What's something different we can try? They have these ideas, but it's almost like maybe the biggest problem with this movie was this was just the Wachowskis Unchained, where they didn't have anybody to say yes. like, I don't know if that's a great idea, guys. Uh, let's let's see about something else. You well, know, the, they yeah, had yeah. a lot of M. Night Shyamalan, Ding Dong, whatever his name is, um, <laughs> syndrome, where it's like you have this really great movie, Sixth Sense, but what people forget is that he was under a lot of scrutiny, had to do a lot of rewrites, had to really prove his work because he was a young director. Well, after that was a box office smash and you know everybody loved it, then they're like, okay, we're pretty sure you know what you're doing. And while everybody has mixed feelings about Unbreakable, some people loved or hated The Village, some people loved or hated Lady in the Water, there is The Happening, (laughs) which ought not to have happened and was kind of proof that somebody should have been sitting there and saying, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. You need to knock it off. So I kind of feel like the Wachowskis' lack of adult supervision movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, the one thing I wanted to bring up is Jupiter is our main character, right? And she is supposed to be going through this change, right? She starts out as kind of like, whiny, poor me, I clean toilets, I hate my life. That's her catchphrase, right? And she's supposed to, throughout the film, become a more confident person, take charge of her life, kind of do all those things, which she does by speaking sort of like the lines are supposed to tell us that but Mila Kunis's delivery just does not convince me of anything and the fact that the tone is switching throughout this film so it's like at first it is you know my big fat Greek wedding here's me and my Russian family here's my skeezy cousin who's taking advantage of me and then when she meets Kane and goes to space now it's I don't know what I'm doing but you're kind of cute oh I'm more accommodated with dogs I've always loved dogs like that it just gets weird romantic comedy <laughs> stuff and then you know you have Most all the space soap opera life. very bad and then but then the weird the weirdest moment for me is the bureaucracy scene where she's going to get her seal and all that stuff that doesn't fit anywhere in the film that's like the movie brazil but like this yes. movie is not the movie brazil you know what i'm saying like It'd be like a nod to terry Gillum, like a nice little wink at him but a wink is much quicker than that scene was yeah and put him so in the movie right okay here you're in the movie we're gonna do your a mini movie with you in it it's like no 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 no. that should have been online on the website or just a special feature on the blu-ray because that just takes you out of the film like immediately here's some important things to be done really really wanted to make a dmv joke yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think that was the entire driving force behind zootopia did it better <laughs> they did oh uh, now let, let's just say this as we're getting ready for the pitches let's go around the horn what was your favorite character at least in the film for whatever reason they could have been on screen for five seconds but was there a character that stood out to you that you said you know what that was actually pretty cool or i liked that characterization or whatever sean bean, sean really? bean. doesn't really matter doesn't, he could have <laughs> just sat there and stared at me the whole time i don't care i'm always gonna love everything sean bean does. Like and, creepy, but... and sean bean didn't die i, like I was gonna ask 
mask. If for no other reason, this movie is a big deal for that reason. Well, I'm allergic to bees, so I, I, I automatically don't like him. All right, Emily? I actually really liked Kalik. And I feel like she was grossly underused. She was by far the most interesting character. Um, Tuppence Middleton. Uh, <laughs> Which is a great she's name. She's got such a great British name. It's up there with Benedict Cumberbatch. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I'd, I'd known who she was before, but I hadn't seen her in anything. And I didn't recognize her until the credits. I didn't realize it was her. But she did a great job with very little given to her. Absolutely. I agree with that. Kristen? You know, it's it's actually really difficult because my instinct is always to identify with a female protagonist, but Jupiter just left so little. Kane uh, Wise, what a name, um, <laughs> was really difficult to appreciate as any kind of rescuing influence. And so with the two leads out of the way and Eddie Redmayne doing that, he was right out. <laughs> Titus was just kind of there to have weird floating in the loop <laughs> and Kalik was, you know, grotesquely underused. So I have to default to the family because at least when they were doing their family antics, I was watching them. So I think the mom was kind of an interesting character. And I think her uncle was a little bit over the top stereotypically, but at least the family dynamics were interesting to watch. For any fans of Downton Abbey, I'm pretty sure that was Spratt, the hmm. Dowester's butler. So added bonus. Well, I will withhold my favorite character for my pitch because there's a reason that my pitch went that way. But I will say that the most intriguing characters to me that I did want to know more about were the Aegis crew. So like Captain Singh and Gemma, the synthetic person, Nash, the elephant man. Like it just felt like if that was a Star Wars or Star Trek, more, more Star Trek competitor, I would actually want to watch that show. It seems like it would be like almost in the Doctor Who universe, yeah. maybe more likely. And kind of another example of good ideas that weren't given time or depth to develop. And I think that's where my rage at the prolonged action sequences come in. Because I'm like, you know what you could have done for 30 seconds? A facial expression on one of your actors, you know? <laughs> so I think they could have spent a little more time with the crew and that would have been pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Like, I didn't realize that the Elephant Man even had a name. They named these people? They did. You got to go check out IMDb or the credits. All right, Jeremy, you want to get us to the next stage of our adventure? Well, it's time to get to the pitches. Now, I I believe, ladies, you've got a combined pitch. This is a first for us to have a combined pitch, so... We don't collaborate here. <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll stay in the same room, but we won't give the same pitch. All right, ladies, you can start us off tonight. One of the <laughs> first questions we had to answer was, are we going to continue in the vein of a ridiculous movie that is more satire than actual good movie, or are we going to try to make the movie as it should have been? So we went ahead and decided that if we were going to do another one, we were going to do it right. So we would begin right where it left off. Kane and Jupiter are distracted by their grab boots. They're <laughs> trying to form a relationship and they're floating over the city and that's all cute. But in reality, there's a whole intergalactic economy that's still in upheaval and working behind the scenes. Because though the refineries process human beings into an eternal youth serum were exploded on one planet it's been pretty obvious that the abrastix family is not the only ones in the game so trade is still happening after the fall of the abrastix holdings from balaam's holdings and so we decided that they would be literal sharks so we want literal shark people and these are a species that have evolved since the clone plague that Kalik referenced that almost wiped out everybody she kind of threw off a casual uh -huh. reference to that when she was talking to jupiter 
So these shark people rebelled because they could and have evolved separately. So they're ready to join the intergalactic economy as an individual power. And they've been in second spot behind the Abrasix family in terms of wealth and achievement in the serum trade. So we would open up the movie to seeing them viewing footage of the explosions at the refinery. And that kind of segues from the initial movie and catches us up to real time and reminds us that there's more at play than just floating along with a dude who now has wings, as cool as that is. So they reveal their holdings while they're talking amongst themselves. They compare it to other competitor holdings, but they're making it clear that the whole trade is much larger than we initially realized. The Abraxics were like the French aristocrats of the trade world. And in their decline, now we're dealing with the grittier, more violent, and a lot less scrupulous, if that's possible, participants who do their own dirty work. So from there, we see the siblings. So Titus, the younger brother, gets news of his brother Balaam's death. And he's really not too moved by it. He's much more upset by the loss of potential income, but he feels better upon learning that he's going to get half of the remaining assets, which is going to be considerable because Balaam had multiple planets under his control and he's getting half of that. We go to Kalik and she gets news and she's also pretty unmoved, but you get less of an idea because she always keeps her cards pretty close, but we find out she'll receive the other half of the holdings and she doesn't seem particularly upset about the death. So from there, we get animal rights activists because they know about Jupiter, they know that she's um, a little more sympathetic and they figure that she'll be much more impressionable. So of course they kidnap her because that's what space people do. Space people kidnap you. They're pretty condescending toward her because she is just an ignorant earthling and they think they can use her. When Kane comes to rescue her, they're also pretty condescending toward him. They treat him like a poor, exploited stray dog, and they really talk down to him, which of course is going to piss him off. So Kane and Jupiter from this decide they really want nothing to do with Space PETA, but it served to get her to realize that this is really a bigger deal than she knew. So when Kane and Jupiter are reunited and they're sick of Space PETA and their attitude, they come to discuss how big the problem still is. Because, you know, at the end of the first movie, Jupiter went from being told that she's the owner of Earth to going back to cleaning toilets, which is a pretty limited worldview. So they wonder what they can do about it. And that's when Sean Bean comes back and helps by joining the fight. And he's going to be the one who introduces Jupiter to a viable mentor figure who can help Jupiter make decent plans. Side note, Sean Bean, he's died in better series than this movie. This movie (laughs) even failed to kill Sean Bean off properly. Which so, is not hard to do. That's a it's a it's a black <laughs> mark in their book. Yeah. <laughs> so he will live in this movie, but we've decided this is gonna be a trilogy, and he will in fact die gloriously in the third installation. Yes. So this movie really is meant to focus on Jupiter's realization that she has responsibilities, so she comes to realize it's not just enough for her to own the Earth for the next 40 years until she dies, because she's not taking advantage of the Eternal Youth Serum. She needs to shut down the trade in order to secure this world's safety. 
So her first step is to protect Earth long term. Now, the way she decides to do that is by making her Earth family her heirs. So, of course, there's going to be illegal scenes to keep the holdings out of the Abrasics' hands. So that gets them into space. and We get to see them freaked out by the space bureaucracy. A much shorter scene this time, but we'll still get to see them interacting with it. So that'll be fun. Titus hears about what she's done. So there are going to be some less stupidly long action scenes with them escaping. Titus is contained and distracted. While this happens, Kalik is going to take the chance to kill him herself, making it seem like it's the shark people's doing. This is going to make her the sole heir of the, the Abraxas line. She will, at the very end, in the third movie, be revealed as the ultimate villain, who will be the key to toppling the Empire in the final movie. So Jupiter and Kane will kind of wrap up the second installation by protecting their family. They've established themselves as a force in the fight against the establishment. They have allies with Space PETA. They have legitimate opposition forces working with them. So Kalik is going to make her move in the third installation along with the Shark People. And we'll basically be waiting to see who is victorious. So we decided that since we have Jupiter ascending for the first movie, we need Jupiter eclipsing for the second. <laughs> the third, Jupiter exalting. Oh, They may, may or may not be triumphant, but it sounds promising. <laughs> Definitely addressing those issues that they left hanging at the end. Ed Shark people! Yes. Gotta have a new alien force. You know, all those dragon men, you know, they, they killed we most saw of the dragon that. Men, yeah. yeah, they mostly did. So. I really like the dragon men. We kind of were thinking about how, you know, you only see animal people in terms of human animal hybrids, or the more animalistic they are the more subservient they are like the dragon men so we figured if we had a race who started out subservient but just kind of saw their opportunity and jumped in on it then we could see some interesting animals that weren't awkward human hybrids well yeah plus it's like the metaphor is so obvious and spot on like you said blood in the water sharks we're gonna be very literal about this you know but, but it's something they would totally do like yeah then you yeah. smell blood in the water like sharks because they are <laughs> well, excellent pitch on a new trilogy. I don't know if this movie's worthy of a trilogy, but we will see. <laughs> Jeff, what do you have for us? I was with you, Jeremy, that this sounded like a book. I mean, the title and everything like that, it even looked like a young adult book. But I really like Jupiter ascending, Jupiter declining, Jupiter you know, promoting, Jupiter whatever it is. I couldn't come up with a good one, but Jupiter eclipsing, that's not bad. So I don't have one, but that could work. So anyway, mine would start off 100,000 years ago as young Seraphi Abraxas is living on the capital planet of Aurorius. Um, <laughs> and she grows up. She's actually in what passes for the middle class on this planet. It's not like rural America or anything because they all are on high rises kind of like fifth element but she definitely is aware of like the wealthy and things along those lines and the movie kind of starts with her life she has a very comfortable middle class life uh, and she's raised by her grandmother and her grandmother at one point dies of old age then the movie shifts kind of like godfather 2 is my comparison shifts to 10 years after the original movie in the present day 
uh, where Jupiter is living on Earth with Cain. She's contacted by the Aegeus that mentioned, kind of like in our last pitch, that mankind is suffering due to the total collapse of the economy because the currency was essentially Regen X, which they are no longer using anymore. And so they need Jupiter to come back and kind of like take her place to kind of bring order back to her realm or whatever that she's considered the majesty of. At that point then, the movie shifts back to the past again and we see that Seraphie is now, uh, which again, both would be played by Mila Kunis because she is supposed to look exactly like Seraphie of Raxus did. Seraphie now, you know, is a little bit older and now she uh, gets a job at a research plant as kind of a receptionist or something not highly thought of or something. And as she's working there, that the scientist at that research plant comes across this radical new invention called Regen X that actually can rejuvenate life. But the problem is, is that it comes from the essence or whatever of living human beings. Fast forwarding then back to the future, we get uh, Jupiter, who's kind of getting the hang of ruling. She's starting to learn what it is to be your majesty. But then she gets wind on occurrences happened of Balaam's genetic double or genetic, re whatever you call it. Re re uh, recurrence. There you go. Which at this point now, he is a seven-year-old boy. And so her advisors are saying, this guy is a threat to you. All of his supporters from the original Balaam are all coming to this seven-year-old kid. And there are armies raised and he wants to, you know, bring back the Regen X trade and everything along those lines. And so basically her advisors essentially tell her that she really only has two options. She can either kill this seven-year-old child or have this seven-year-old child killed and hope that he doesn't come back again for you know quite some time or to yield to him and his armies and just kind of tire back to earth and let him take his place as your majesty then we flash back again where seraphie then has the opportunity and the moment comes for her to actually test it because they kind of give up on the scientists are not willing to make the sacrifices because of what it's going to take to actually make regen x actually work and Seraphie is faced with this choice where she meets this child who is ill and she realizes that if she sacrifices this child, she could test Regen X and that would enable her to actually make it and start it as a thing. And so she decides that, yes, she is going to do that. So she sacrifices this child, makes the Regen X, becomes the ruler that she becomes. Meanwhile, in the future, Jupiter is faced with a similar choice, and she has learned kind of of the past of Seraphie and her, like she's kind of learning along with us, the audience, and she sees that she has a very, very similar choice about dealing with this child, and she instead decides to go the other way. So she decides to abdicate her throne. She decides to yield to this seven-year-old child, the you know recurrence of Balaam, and she you know, retires to Earth. And that's the end to be continued in a third installment. The intrigue. Dual timelines. Is that kind of like frequency, though? Uh, No, because they're not actually, like, interacting with the past. Uh, Again, I was kind of seeing it more like Godfather 2, where they were kind of telling the, the story of how they got there, and it was kind of paralleling the story that Michael was going through. 
So it was kind of that same I, that same thing, but I wanted that theme of Jupiter is her own person. So she can actually make this choice, even though they kind of said, well, you know, right, this is who you are. This is the choice you've already made. She has the choice to choose something different. I like that because it is an interesting idea that the movie kind of hinted at the question of, is Jupiter really this reincarnated person? Or is she an entirely different soul that just happens to have the same genetic combination? So it sounds like your movie is taking an interesting stance on that. Right. Well, my thought was, too, is that because a lot of the things like we talked about is that the original movie kind of assumed a lot of things. And we kind of were thrust right into the middle of this incredibly complex world. And it was very confusing. So to kind of go back and to be like, let's see how this kind of all started. And like that, I feel from an audience perspective, would give us a little bit more more grounding like you said even they're like look at this statue it looks just like you and i'm not sure that it did and i I didn't get enough of a connection that she was a spitting image of this their mom and so to make a little bit stronger a connection they put bonsai hair on her and then as yeah. they go, I see it. Yeah. But also we get in your pitch, we get the opportunity to hear a seven-year-old with a Balaam voice. Okay, someday. What like a terrible infant to babysit. Like one that's <laughs> fine and cooing, and the next he's like screaming, and then he's cooing again. And you're like, I don't know what I don't know. Was. That sounds like all of my babysitting experiences. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although I think it's not good with kids. It might also be interesting to do it the complete opposite way where this seven-year-old kid is a, is a sweetheart of an angel, like just like the perfect child, which makes her decision even more difficult. Where it's like, I don't see Eddie Redmayne in this child at all, and you're telling me I should kill him? Because if he was, yeah, if he was Eddie Redmayne, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Kind of, you know, cause it's, is it nurture? Is it nature? Is it your, right. your genotype? Is it how you're raised? And if this is a kid who recurs... Um, and in a completely different environment, then this is Jupiter's chance to assert her independence um, from her past and her body and to assert that she's her own person and, and this kid might be too. I like that it's against Balaam too because there's that moment at the end where she has the chance to knock him off of ever and she says, I'm not your mother. And, and this is just kind of coming back to that. Well, and we established that Balaam was the one that killed his mother in the first place. So. All right, drum roll, and Adam, what do you have for us? Yes, drum roll indeed, because it's time to reveal my favorite character in this movie. (laughs) So many to choose from. So yes, it's not an alien, it's not a warrior of any sort. It is, in fact, Vladi, the idiot cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Another great name. Yes, he was so funny. And he seemed the most genuine to me of anybody on screen. Like, did not he try and steal her eggs? Well, I'm not trying to make her sell it for his money. (laughs) Genuine. And he was claiming more of the money for himself than she was getting. (laughs) But he was 100% true to himself. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Gotta respect that. But the actor, his name is Kick Gurry. That is an amazing name. Kit Gurry is is body. But here's what happened is I had the same mental discussion with myself that Emily and, and Kristen had. Do you do a parody since it was already terrible? Do you try to just continue that now? Or are they in on it? 
or do you go with just a continuation? And I did a whole thing very similar to your pitch, but it was all about, there's a line in there that Sting, Sting, Stinger, right? Stinger says he's a wolf without a pack, right? It was going to be this whole thing where Channing Tatum finds these space pirate likeated people like him and it's like a love triangle with the female captain and not at all the stuff but plus that there was all these factions vying for the trade and actor her mom has cancer then she's got to choose like will she get the cure for cancer from this group to trade for harvesting rights and all these things and then i was just throwing it at my wife to see what she thought she's like okay so that's the same decision she already made in the old movie plus do you want another two and a half hours of mila kunis and channing Tatum and I was like no so I give you my wacky space slacker adventure which I call Jupiter's Missing so <laughs> Jupiter Ascending mixed with Dude Where's My Car Oh yeah, yeah. viable crossover really right <laughs> Adam your character kind of sounds like he's almost the Polly Shore of this universe. <laughs> and I do love Son in Law. So oh, I don't I, we I all. Take that as I mean... a compliment. All right. So this is taking place five years after the first film. And Jupiter has helped to grow her family cleaning business into a national corporation while she's acting as the VP of operations. She got her confidence. She got her belief in family and life and all these things from the last film. So everybody's doing well, except her scumbag cousin, Vladi, who was recently fired when he blew up a wealthy client's mansion during an unauthorized house party with hundreds of uninvited guests to impress a hot girl that he met at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> So in her role as the owner of Earth, Jupiter has obviously canceled all plans for harvesting of humans to produce the rejuvenating nectar once sold by the Brassics family, which obviously has caused some anger among their manufacturing partners, a group called the Workus, who had been promised to make a healthy profit off the future harvest before Balaam's death. So Meanwhile, also, Cain proposes to Jupiter while they're on a romantic space date, but after a passionate kiss, the pair are ambushed by a seemingly rogue band of space pirates and presumed dead. So then you get a little bit of the bureaucracy, and due to a clerical error, Vladi is unknowingly named her heir and given ownership <laughs> of the Earth. So now hijinks are ensuing because interested groups from throughout the galaxy actually converge on a Chicago Bulls game where he's working as a janitor now and they try to abduct the unwitting owner of the universe's prize jewel. So they're chasing Vladi through the arena, you know, through the court, on in the locker rooms. And these batter hunters are they are eventually thwarted by Stinger, who comes in to save Vladi, and he's taken to the Aegis for safekeeping where Gemma, the synthoid officer, is made his bodyguard. So when the truth of his status is revealed and Vladi, like, understands what's going on, he can't believe his good luck. And he's so excited about what he's going to do. And he has no concern for Jupiter. And he only agrees <laughs> to allow further investigation of her death after prodding from Captain Singh, who can't stand this selfish slacker that's on her ship. And so he's just, like, bugging everybody. He's making fun of the Nash elephant guy. He's just, he's just bugging everybody. And he's also <laughs> constantly flirting with Gemma who doesn't get most of the sexual innuendo he's throwing her away because she's a robot, you know. Uh, but he eventually breaks down her programming barriers and kind of teaches her how to have some fun because that's his way. He's just fun time bloody. So 
with his newfound intergalactic hey, fame and influence. <laughs> he's living large in a galaxy. You know, he's like he's like being wined and dined by Maloof, who is the leader of the Workus, as well as the surviving Abrasic siblings, Titus and Kalik. So they're they're all working together to get the Earth from him. And so after nonchalantly just agreeing to a future deal. For these factions to start by harvesting Antarctica, Siberia, and Canada. He's like, nobody cares about these places. Wow. Vladi is given some prime real estate on Saturn, a harem of beautiful spliced call girls, and a big screen TV the size of a two-story building to play video games on. Meanwhile, Gemma's enjoying the idea of being more human and letting loose, but this ultimately leads to Vladi's downfall because she becomes distracted while dancing in a nightclub, allowing him to be abducted by the space pirates that killed Jupiter and Cain, who are, it's revealed, working from aloof. So Vladi is thrown into a cell and is surprised to see Jupiter alive and keeping company with a, a dog man. And the pair scold him for his selfish, short-sighted attitude, of course, explaining that Maloof's true plan is to murder Titus Kalik and Vladi, then harvest the entire Earth with forged documents supposedly signed by his dead business partners. So Jupiter and Kane are they're discussing, yeah, we'd be trying to come up with this plan to break out, but we really need somebody on the outside. There's really no way we can do it. So Vladi helps him put it into action because he had this communicator that Gemma gave him that he was keeping in his underwear. So he pulls that out. And then Gemma is about to be discharged from the Aegis for her negligence when the call comes in and it kind of halts that proceeding. So Captain Singh and their crew are making their way to Maloof's compound on Saturn, but the villain, he discovers the communicator, just decides to kill the trio off right away. He calls for the space pirates and sends them off to basically shoot them off into the vacuum of space where their bodies are going to be pummeled by the debris, which comprises the rings of Saturn. So there won't be any evidence left, you know, they'll just be beaten to dust. So with the Aegis ship just minutes away from Saturn, Vladi manages to distract the pirates from the mission of killing them by showing them phone video footage of his infamous house party. And so like Jupiter's all disgusted, ah, but, but it's working. And just as the video reaches the moment where the house is exploding, Captain Singh and the crew bust through the hull of the pirate ship and Gemma single-handedly takes out the pirates, you know, trying to redeem herself. And then the Aegis is trying to send Vladi, Jupiter, and Kane to safety in an escape pod from their ship while they're kind of uh, wrapping everything up. But one of the pirates is not quite dead, and he gets one last shot off from the ship's laser cannon, which sends the, the pod hurtling towards Saturn's surface. So Kane is knocked out in that attack, leaving Vladi only to use his video game piloting skills to work out a safe landing while receiving the briefest of tutorials on how the controls work from Gemma via the communicator. So during their descent, Maloof is back at his compound. He's getting ready to kill Titus and Kalik. He's proposing a toast in his vault of nectar. Oh, to us, you know, and he locks the door. He's just about to kill him when Vladi crashes the pod into this huge column outside the, the vault. And it, when it crashes through the doors, it breaks open this giant like vanity vat of nectar that he was always, that Maloof was so proud of. And it ironically drowns the three would-be harvesters of Earth in the life-extending liquid. So that's the end of them. And then preparing <laughs> for the return to Earth, Vladi is chewed out by Jupiter again for all the trouble he caused, but then praised for saving the day. So she offers him a job back on Earth that will not involve any keys to any residences being handed over to him. 
But Vladi opts to stay and testify on Gemma's behalf of the things he did that made it difficult for her to take care of him and get her reinstated with the Aegis and decides to join up himself, much to Captain Singh's chagrin. The end. Vladi's <laughs> <laughs> oh. wild ride. Jupiter's missing. Oh, Vladi. <laughs> Would that not be a wholly more enjoyable film than what we had to sit through? Well, granted, I don't know. I can't. I've seen After Earth, but I've not seen this. So I can't say which is worse, but I can guess. <laughs> this is just a shout out to Jeff, a friend of ours, Justin Musel, who's a big fan of the fact that when we used to play NBA Jam on Super Nintendo back oh, in the day, yeah. I always chose Vlade Divac, which may have something to do with why I love Vlade so much in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I would just talk as Vlade while we were playing and be like, Vlade shoots! Bloody scores! Bloody! So, you know, I feel like at some point, Bloody's got to shout out his name at some intergalactic party. I would anyway. like to also point out along that story's line is that Adam knows probably less about basketball than any human being I've ever met. <laughs> so... When he talks about playing with Vlade Divac, who was a seven foot one center, all he would do was shoot three pointers from his own basket <laughs> while yelling Vlade. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Take control of the show, Jerry. Sorry. Well, here comes the most interesting portion, the vote. Well, we've got five, so I am the tiebreaker again. Ladies, how this works is you can vote for any pitch other than your own. And we'll give each of you a vote. So you can split them or pair them up and make this a real quick or a real tough decision. I would probably stay in line with trying to keep it to the tone that Wachowski's were going for but failed miserably with. And while I would... Oh, bloody. Um, I... I'm going to throw my vote in with Jeff. Um, I think it's interesting to consider the past lives because we kind of overlooked that option. And so it's it's interesting to see the dichotomy between current Jupiter versus past therapy. I like that angle. Yeah, I actually agree. I think that there's a lot of potential there that they didn't do anything with. And I'd like to see that worked with. I think that would be really cool to see. And I love a good backstory. All right, Jeff. Yeah, I know it's much, a hard choice, Jeff. It is. <laughs> as much as I appreciate the Vlade, I, 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 yeah, it's just such a shift. It's a yeah, because it's a, such a completely different feel. And again, as a Wachowski supporter, I would rather them swing for the fences than not swing at all. I would still stick with a more Wachowski feel, so I'd go with the girls one. All right, Adam. You know, here's the thing. Obviously, I love the concept of shark people because I think shark, <laughs> shark people, and we don't get enough of that on screen. I think just on like the Flash TV series, we have a, a giant shark bad guy. But other than that, where else are you get them? <laughs> so I, I was excited about that concept. However, I really I love like the alternating timelines concept of Jeff's story and the morality, that decision that has to be made in killing a child that, you know, it's basically like the whole concept. Would you go back and kill baby Hitler, right? So I, I really like that idea. So I think I, too, feel like Jeff's pitch is definitely going to get my vote just for some of those decisions that you have to discuss as part of that viewing experience. Well, that decides it then. Three to one. I don't even need to vote. Give a vote to Vlade. No, I couldn't give you the, <laughs> the point there, Adam. Oh. <laughs> All right. So let's flesh this out. The first thing I wanted to consider with Jeff's pitch is we have this explanation to Jupiter that this kid is going to grow up possibly and become her most evil foe once again. But the thing I wanted to understand was 
the kid, I'm assuming he just has parents. He was just born. He didn't appear out of the ether. But I was wondering if he could have dead parents and an evil uncle who is a shark person. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> that could lead him down a dark path. I would say you know, instead of that, one thing that I was thinking is that the kid would not be the main character. It's about Jupiter mm -hmm. still. And so right. even if he barely appears or something like that to really go a whole lot into his backstory, I think takes away from Jupiter. But most of Balaam's advisors were all killed in the explosion. So if like the next rank that is left could be a shark person, I'm down for that. That would make <laughs> At least a spliced <laughs> shark person. Well. Right. And that's the thing that I agree with is that the ones that they attempted to do mostly human looking hybrids, that was where it got weirder. Like, I'm sorry, Elephant Man freaked me out where he was 100 percent human with an eight inch trunk. That was creepy. An Same thing guy. with like girl with mouse ears and <laughs> but, like the dragon was actually supposed to be a deer. Was it deer? Or? Yeah, or, I looked it up. Well, well they like failed. the dragon people, yeah, the dragon people were mostly dragon. Then that was where I, I bought it a little bit more. My only fear with the shark people is I keep picturing, what were they called? What was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle ripoff? Yeah, Street Sharks. Street Sharks? Yeah. I keep yeah, picturing I <laughs> well, they won't be wearing rollerblades, just gravity boots. That's all. Honestly, boots. I have to confess that I was thinking more like they would just be clever sharks that ring people's doorbells and eat them. <laughs> wow. Get Bill Murray in on it. But yeah, so like, I, and I understand your concern. Like, it's not really what it's about. But my thought was we're going back between the two timelines, but there needs to be some sort of threat to Jupiter in the current timeline. That was why I was thinking if you had an evil uncle or evil whoever, that he's like, look, he's the reoccurred. So if she was dead, then the kid would automatically, you know, inherit it. So like he's now seeing in his mind, he's like, ah, you know, dollar signs, whatever. He would be pushing the kid in that direction. And then maybe even having some machinations to possibly kill Jupiter that, you know, again, that's not the main story, but you see it as a possibility. Okay. So there's the tension there, which I didn't understand quite. What was her tension in the pitch other than her moral decision? Was there anything else going well, on? Most, the overall tension was the same thing that the girls had about the shift in the economy and the fact that mm. that's why she had to kind of come back and take her role. Because that's the other thing, too, is that in the original movie, it seemed like that Regenex or Nectar or whatever they called it was like the primary currency. Not only is it what made the Abraxas family so wealthy, but it's how they were paying all their mercenaries. So mm. if all of a sudden that's taken off the shelf, and which is the other thing, like, there's no possible way I think you're going to be able to convince an audience that that's a, a moral choice. If that was her moral choice with like, should we harvest humans or not? No one's going <laughs> to ever buy that. Right. Like that's exactly. never a situation where that's okay. <laughs> so if we just take that off the table. That's a conundrum. Yeah. You really see both sides. Exactly. Well, that's what, and it's funny. Cause again, I was putting a lot of parallels between Godfather where, you know, in the Godfather, even as Michael is kind of wrestling with this idea of nowadays the mafia has to get involved in drugs, even though my dad didn't want to. But as an audience member, you're like, yeah, I mean, in that world, I see, you know, like selling drugs. I can see that that's a thing you would have to do much different than, yeah, harvesting humans. So that's why I kept thinking, I'm like, could what's the drugs of their could there be a thing that they have to compromise on? 
But then I kind of like the angle of, yeah, introducing instead, that's the initial conflict that brings her in, but then the conflict still raised by the siblings. That's where, yeah, that kind of comes from. And I have a question. I'm sure we want a feel-good ending, but is there any way we would just leave it ambiguous that you don't know what her decision is? Like, maybe she will kill that kid someday. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, she's left as the babysitter, and we're like, we don't know how these... Yeah. Uh-huh. She's like... The sideways glance of her eyes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, except for then you you kind of lose the parallel effect. Like you guys were talking about with the whole idea of nature versus nurture, where it's kind of this idea that do you actually have the choice? And the fact is, too, that I would want to make it a really tough choice. Having to live with yourself killing a child, which is what you did before, quote unquote, or turning over to a potential monster. For me, there would have to be a a lot of showing that she's actually buying into the possibility of this seven-year-old growing into Balaam because she spent so much time in the first movie, you know, I'm not your mother, this isn't me, you know, and she never had any flashbacks to remembering her past life. So there was no actual solid connection to Seraphie. So in order for it to be a conflict and not just a clear choice, I'd have to see her having some kind of reconnection to her roots somehow so that she felt like maybe this kid could come back and be her ultimate enemy. Maybe instead of us just seeing flashbacks, we see them like they were visions that she had, like she had these dreams of her past life. Yeah, that could work. There's kind of a, like an opportunity for another Wachowski technology that could be uh-huh. possible but isn't really based on reality. Like, are there memory cubes? Is there a memory serum? Is there some kind of storage that they have? Because recurrences are allegedly part of their culture. They have it built into their legal system. So have they provided a way for their future incarnations to resume, do they have memory bank? Or like Assassin's Creed, where they just hook them up to the Animus. Right. And fight the uh, Templars or whatever. Uh, well, what about like, or what if it was something, because again, I was kind of, from that the one perspective that you guys kind of brought up about like frequency and stuff like that, what if it was like you were saying, where, you know, whether it's a dream or whatever it is, or maybe she's like a waking vision or something like that, where it's like all of a sudden she's there like a hundred thousand years ago and she's like living that life or something like that. Well, but then how do you make her still make that decision then? Hmm. That's why I kind of like the idea of the memory banks. It doesn't conclusively answer nurture versus nature. Are people brainwashing their future incarnations to make decisions based on their past selves that they wouldn't naturally have come to? And so it's not conclusively stating, it's just one more thing, another angle for her to fight against. It's like, you can't reprogram me, I'm a grown woman. Interesting. Like, maybe that could be part of the coronation process, is that, well, now that you're, which I was still very confused, like, I thought they were just a really wealthy family, but everybody kept calling her Her Majesty, or Your Majesty. Mm. So she had some sort of a title, or an empress, or a regent, or whatever she was. Yeah, we kind of had to make that decision, too, because she didn't have any recognizable authority over, like, Earth government. Right. She's kind of just a leasee or, like, you know, a a property holder. So, you know, we we had to decide, is she French aristocracy style or, Mm. you know, do they have an actual cosmic lawmaking presence? And I don't think they do because the Aegis or the Aegis or whatever it's called was still able to come in and get her from Kalik. 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't think they do have any actual like legal authority. I think they're just really rich and powerful personally. But everybody called her her, her Majesty though. Like even I mean that was the whole thing with Sean Bean and they respond the bees responded to her and oh, God. don't forget about the bees. Oh, the bees sense royalty. Oh, I forgot. Well, because that's the other part too is your average everyday humans don't even living in this highly advanced culture they don't have access to this Reginex so they probably still only live 100, 120 years. So if you're going to compare that to someone who's been alive for 91,000 years, by default, you're just going to call that person, you know, a big deal. We felt there was a lot of opportunity to introduce already existing rebellious factions because this fantastic wealth and this rejuvenating power is held by, what, like four people. And if it's so incredibly expensive, then like you said, there have to be people who are not able to take advantage of that. And whenever you have that kind of massive difference in class structure, there are going to be people who are very discontent. And she did mention that their family and their race had been the basis for a lot of vampire myths. So I think there's room to explore the other populations of the planet, not just the people who are working in the castles, but the people who are less well off. And that could even be the Balaam connection, is that maybe with the kid, that's who he riles up. The poor, middle, lower, whatever classes are the ones that are supporting this guy. So how much is the seven-year-old instigating and how much is he just like used as a figurehead at this point? Adam, you kind of said if he is mostly a figurehead, like he is this faction's claim to the throne... And mm-hmm. so that makes her choice even more difficult because he really does come across as an innocent child. Um, but the only way to stop this faction is to get rid of their claim, which is this child. Well, right. That was my thought kind of at the end. I, if we were going with whoever this person that's his caretaker that's using him as the figurehead that's leading him down this path to you know take over whatever like my thought was that ultimately jupiter's decision could actually be again the nature versus nurture to take the child as her own if he's like an orphan or something and then she can raise him you know so she could just live her 40 years 50 years whatever and then she would raise him to be the person that would rightfully take over genetically you know have the right to do so but also morally she would raise him to make the right decisions and kind of guide the economy and whatever else else they would work together to find the best solutions like that was kind of my one other thought i had for the end i was thinking that too i like that that does give it a happy ending then as opposed to for me i was kind of thinking (laughs) well yeah that could be that totally could be the third one because that that was my thought is that yeah she saves a child but she dooms the entire universe dun 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 Mm -hmm. end of movie Again, it forces you to come back for a third movie, but if you wrap it up, then it doesn't necessarily force it as much. And yeah, if we give her a third option where it's just like, what's the option that doesn't hurt anybody? Well, that's no fun. (laughs) Right. We've got to make it a Sophie's choice of sorts. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about just because Jeff didn't have a title, as he said. So I had just like two very basic ideas, keeping in with the title structure. The first was Jupiter returning, you know, the reoccurrence, it's returning, whatever. But the other one I was thinking is Jupiter reflecting, something like that, because it's kind of a reflection of the past, kind of plays with that. But I don't know if you guys had other ideas for what you would call this. I still thought it was kind of strange. Did Jupiter ascend in this movie? It doesn't seem like she did. 
Well, her no. ascension was becoming an entitled. That's what yeah. they called that whole thing that she it, went through. That was her But then ascension. she gave it up, didn't she? I, I don't know. She kind of went really weirdly full circle in a way that I thought was unnecessary. As like, yeah. lady, I know this is hard to believe, but you can have <laughs> self-actualization without returning to the scrubbing. <laughs> but no, that's good. No, because you said Jupiter reflecting. For the girls pitch, you guys kind of threw in obligatory action sequences. This is in the action genre, so you would have to throw in some sort of conflict where Kane's got to show up and then punch somebody and then blah, 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 blah. Take off his shirt um, and have grab boots. But yeah, that's why I was thinking if there was a, a word close to that that was a little bit more action-packed. Refracting. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, <laughs> but it'd be awesome. Jupiter refracting. My wife would like that. It sounds, like, it sounds like she's punching people with glass fists. Does like it? Yeah. yeah. It's a new yeah. meaning word. Oh, she totally refracted that guy. Oh, yeah. Awesome refraction. You see the refraction? That was like three different angles. <laughs> My other thought was, is she continuing to ascend? So does it have to be like Jupiter ascending and then, you know, subtitled? I kind of want yeah, to, yeah. you know, really jump the shark and have it be like Jupiter ascending jupiter befriending jupiter <laughs> and like just rhyme it out and let somebody else perfect. figure it out pretending yeah oh, but something defending. like what about because if it's ascending so we've got her ascension and then the second one will be like jupiter becoming but not becoming because that sounds horrible evolving oh yeah <laughs> she was gonna grow a leg out of her chest or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> We weren't sure Ju what her final form would Jupiter be. Jupiter revolving, you know, like, you know, just get the revolution. Yeah, I am for it out, but I kind of I like Jupiter defending. Ooh, um, defending. Yeah, she, yeah, she was just finding that. And that's very action-packed. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Jupiter defending. Good. We've done it. Did we say yay or nay on shark person guiding the child, though? Okay. Are we good with that? Yeah. All right. Does he need a name? Yeah. Bruce. Did they have really... It's Bruce, of course. Well, can so I just we ask this? I know we're keeping it in the same universe. Is there any way to retcon this universe and recast Mila Kunis? I don't know. She's capable of this film like that she, we've conceived. So we, I think she has potential if she just isn't allowed to talk about liking dogs anymore. Oh. Yeah, maybe just better writing would help her do it. It was funny, too, that I think they tried to get away with it because her character even acknowledged that that was a stupid thing to say, but you said it, and we yeah. still... <laughs> there were so that. many other stupid lines that she yeah. should have been embarrassed about yeah. and what like when anakin skywalker it, it, started talking about how much he hated sand he didn't say that was a dumb thing to say he thought that was <laughs> so that's why we all hated him but <sighs> this gal jupiter can be kind of a goofball but it needs to be consistent and it needs to have depth you know kind of round her out a bit yeah which I think just the story itself and, and again, the, the concept of this film would do. It's not so much the love story in this film or shoehorning a love story in so we wouldn't be distracted by that goofiness. But yeah, but Emily and Kristen, thank you for joining us. You made yes. a very nice contribution to this discussion, that's for sure. And you broke through the wall there. Team pitch and all sorts of stuff. So that's yeah. pretty cool. Always innovating. Thanks for trying new angles. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of Sequel Quest. Follow us on all the socials at Sequel Quest and on Twitter at SQPod. Join us on the website at SequelQuestPod 
and share us with your friends, you can pretty much find us anywhere. Honestly, lies are sometimes the only reason I get out of bed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, you didn't lie, Eddie. Lie. We hope you enjoyed all the fun of today's show and invite you to check out our regularly scheduled podcast, Sequel Quest, where we imagine the next installments of your favorite movie franchises. Find Sequel Quest on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at sequelquestpod.com now.